following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 108, Drones and Shoots That Keep You Out of the Leaves, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to a special episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. My name is Carl Valeri, and I'll be your host this evening. I'm joined by quite a few other Av geeks this evening. Uh, first off, we have Rick Felty. Rick, welcome. Hello, hello. Great and, to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Larry Overstreet. Larry, welcome. Good evening from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Tom, welcome. Welcome from sunny Florida. And Victoria, welcome. Hello again. <laughs> and I actually am from a remote location in New Jersey. I'm recording in uh, my hometown of Basking Ridge, New Jersey. It's a bucolic town, and we can tease, we can tease Eric. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> we can tease Eric about that. If you don't know what we're talking about, go go back to some episodes, and you'll see what, about bucolic New Jersey and flying <laughs> in bucolic New Jersey. Poor Eric. We can pick on Eric because Eric Crump can't join us this evening. He's doing something like running a college or something like that, an aerospace program, something crazy along those lines. Let's do the pre-flight. Before we begin and uh, start our program, I want to do something a little bit different because today is a special day. It's Veterans Day, and we're recording this on Veterans Day. Of course, this will come out on the 15th. But, you know, usually um, I, we do the picks of the week at the end, but my pick of the week has a lot to do with Veterans Day. There's uh, My pick of the week is going to be about the National Museum of the Mighty Eighth Air Force, uh, and that's in Pooler, Georgia. But I specifically want to talk about one of the new exhibits, or one of the exhibits they've actually really enhanced, I should say. And it's, uh, it talks about these individuals that were pretty much ordinary and went to extraordinary. Talks about the, the Medal of Honor. So let me, let me start there. The, the Medal of Honor was established in 1861, and it represents the highest award for valor in combat that can be bestowed upon a member of the armed forces of the United States. Thousands of Americans have received the Medal of Honor since the Civil War, including famous Americans Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Douglas MacArthur, and Charles Lindbergh. However, most recipients are regular Americans who, along with many others, left their homes across America to serve our nation in times of conflict. Under exceptional circumstances, these men risked their own lives to perform an act or series of acts of incredible valor, distinguishing them from their comrades. Well, at the Pooler Museum, they have a new, an exhibit called The Stories of Heroism, and these stories are, are sacrificed by the 17 Medal of Honor recipients and their remarkable stories. Ten of these men were recognized posthumously for sacrificing their lives in order for their crews to bail out of damaged aircraft successfully. Other pilots successfully inflicted significant damage to targets 
and successfully landed their aircraft despite being severely damaged. You know, Sergeant Maynard Smith was forced to fight a fire on a B-17 flying fortress, manned both waist gun positions and attended to a wounded crew member. Another person, Brigadier General Frederick Castle, was leading 2,000 heavy bombers towards a strike against enemy airfields when an engine on his B-17 failed, forcing him out of formation. As his unescorted plane lagged further and further behind, it became the target of enemy fighters. You know, Castle bailed out and ordered the remainder to bail out. Alone at the controls, he allowed his crew to escape. Castle was killed after another enemy attack shot down his aircraft. These are just an example of the heroic acts of the, those performed during the war, during World War II. And we salute those veterans. And we salute those veterans that, uh, in our own personal lives. And I, I, we're going to go around real quickly and salute those that, that we appreciate. I, the veterans in my lives, of, of course, of my father, who was drafted during Vietnam, and, of course, my wife, who served in the Navy. So let's go around. Uh, Larry first has, a, has someone that he wanted to recognize. Uh, yeah, just a couple. Um, our friend from Other People's Airplanes, Damon Favor. Um, who's currently serving, and also uh, my friend Bobby Burrell from Arkansas, who served in the first Gulf War. And uh, Tom, you had someone that you wanted to recognize. And yeah, I recognize my uh, my father-in-law, Glenn Cuzcolding, and uh, he served in World War II as well. And Victoria, you had someone. Yeah, uh, everyone might know her, Linda Meeks from um, Girls uh, with Wings. Also, two listeners, David and uh, Brandy Phil. And this one I learned about a while back. There was a dog who served in World War II, was actually a member of the Sea Squatters Club, and her name was Turbo. Turbo, wow. Well, thanks, Victoria. And also, uh, Rick, you had someone you wanted to recognize. Yeah, I'd like to recognize my father, um, who was in the Air Force in um in Korea, not in Korea, but during Korea. And uh, he kind of was the reason I got into flying indirectly, uh, his passion for it. Uh, though he didn't fly a lot, he, he, he gave me some direction that kind of came back later in my life and got me, got me fired up to go do it. So I want to uh, mention him. Well, we appreciate uh, him for doing that and, and for bringing you here. And, and for all of you that have our veterans that are listening today, we appreciate your service in the past, your service now, and also your service in the future. It's uh, you folks that keep us safe here and those out throughout the world. Now entering cruise flight. So let's move on to today's episode. Uh, we have uh, some really cool things to talk about. First thing that, that I really wanted to discuss is, number one, there's, there's this, you know, I, I'm over at the university at uh, Polk State College, and we talk a lot about drones. Well, recently, uh, there's been some interesting articles uh, out there about drones and, and uh, making them safer. Well, one way to make them operate safely and also operate safely within the airspace uh, is, you know, this new in, in <laughs> initiative here. And that's for the drones to be registered. And uh, I know we all have some feelings about drones and flying around drones, uh, but I think they're going to be something, uh, a force that's going to help us move forward uh, with society in general, but also in aviation. And I wanted to get some feedback from from the other folks here as far as drone registration. Um, I think the purpose of this, just to sum up, uh, the drone registration will enable uh, the folks that are in law enforcement uh, and also the the Department of Transportation to figure out 
uh, number one, who is operating these drones and help them in educating those people in operating the drones. And, and another, number two, it also helps uh, with enforcing those rules and those laws because one of the things that they've had challenges with is all these different reports that they receive about drones and quote-unquote near misses with drones. They really have a tough time trying to narrow down uh, who's actually flying that. With, through this registration process, uh, I think or they feel – they feel that it's actually going to help them in discovering who is actually operating those drones and actually go after them and say, hey, listen, you know, this is – you shouldn't have been doing this and, uh, and this is why and, and operate them a lot safer. I haven't had a lot of uh, instances of seeing drones uh, up close and personal in an aircraft. I fly over a field. Uh, that actually flies, quote-unquote, drones out of, uh, you know, the, some recreational drones, et cetera. And it's, uh, it's right under a, a flight path of uh, JFK Airport. And it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting to see that the, these folks operating them. The thing that I, I get afraid of is, is the people that are operating these uh, nefariously and also uh, people that operate them in, you know, in an inconsistent manner and also inconsistent with safety. So with that said, I'm kind of curious, and I'll, I'll leave it up to the other co-hosts to talk a little bit about this. You know, what are your feelings about this, this new rule, just this one specifically as far as the registration is concerned? Do you think this is going to enhance uh, safety in our airspace system? And Rick, I'll let you kind of talk yeah. about that a little bit. I know you had something to say about the drones. Well, no, I, was, I, I there were a number of stories this week that we can touch on in a minute about um, various kinds of, of uh, I guess, new and, and – uh, non uh non-traditional aircraft um and manned and unmanned um and you know i get yeah you know for me um i would say that my my reaction is see i i i like there's a number of reasons why i think drones are are interesting and worth exploring and we should figure out the ways to make it happen uh, that are you know that that enhance safety as well i am you know having been up in the air and you know seen things coming at me, you know, like birds or little kids' balloons or whatever it is, you know, and it had a moment of, you know, what's that? And that little, I, I don't necessarily want to be in a sudden, uh, you know, collision course with something very small and hard to, hard to figure out. So, uh, so I get the concern about, about safety. Um, and so for me, I think, um, and I'm also not, uh, I'm not a person who freaks out about, um, about, you know, registration of a car or of whatever, you know, I mean, if, if, if it helps, um, I, you know, I, I guess, I guess I would, I wouldn't worry about it. And I would come down on the side of, look, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, I get that it might be added bureaucracy and added paperwork and, and expense and other things, but, but it sort of makes sense. We know where all the planes are. It would be nice to know where all the other things are too, that are, uh, interacting with those. And then the other thing I, the other part of the, the drone thing I like is that, um, being in the in sort of the media business and uh, the 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 ability to carry cameras on drones is is quite useful to to what to what I do to what people like me do um, and there's lots of different industries that could, that benefit from from mobile camera platforms like that so um, so I'm all in favor of it and it seems like registration is not a bad idea but that's just my quick reaction to it. Yeah, I like the idea. I think it's great. Uh, just like you said, it's uh, it's a wonderful idea. Anybody operating an aerospace system, I think it's a good idea. Tom, I think you had something you wanted to add as far as uh, the drones. Yeah, and and I agree totally with what Rick was just saying. I mean, the the use for drones is um, 
you know, it's just a whole world out there that, that can be, uh, has all sorts of uses. And uh, I attended an event, aviation event this past weekend. Uh, it was uh, When Pigs Fly South over in, uh, at KLAL in Lakeland, Florida. And uh, it was a great event, a little sidebar there. But um, within the event, there were all sorts of booths. And one of them was a, a young man who had um, several drones. And, and uh, they were all different sizes. I'm going to say uh, four and five bladed ones. They were from anywhere from eight inches in diameter up to about 24 inches in diameter. Um, he went through and showed me all the whiz-bang stuff they had on them, the cameras, the GPS um, just all sorts of bells and whistles on these things, and they were they were pretty high end uh, pieces of machinery. And um, I had specifically asked him about um, registration numbers on his drones, and you know he said, "Well, no, I'm not required yet." And he didn't seem like he was very interested in um, applying any of those to. He says, "Ah, it's just a ploy so they can tell what I'm doing," you know. And um, I had asked him a side question. Um, he had no idea that I was a pilot. I was just somebody asking questions. And I says, "Well, how have you gotten one of these things?" He says. I think I got one up to 10,000 feet one time, and, and I just, I was aghast. I was like, oh, are you kidding me? And, and I says, how do you even see that thing up that high? He says, well, it was pretty clear. He says, I could see a little dot for most of the way up, but he wow. says, you know, and the GPS got me back down again, and I, I, I was able to retrieve it. And just, you know, I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that particular piece, a, a drone up at 10,000 feet. And, you know, so I, I agree with all the potential that these particular devices have, you know, how they get to a place of regulation and making these things so that, um, like, like Rick was saying, I agree with that about, you know, we know where all the airplanes are. I would like to know where all the drones are as well. Yeah, and I also would say that there's, there, there are some logical assumptions about the need to have, you know, how high up does a drone need to go to be functionally useful in various applications? And I would suggest that at least over um, non-enemy territory, 10,000 feet is is you know, just it's crazy. Right. Yeah. And, and, and not going on, like I said, this was one individual in one place that I was talking to, you know, so right. I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that this is what the whole drone can I mean, be. And right. I, I, I see the potential in these things. Yeah. Even 2000 feet. If you're near, if you're near an airport, you know, that it, it makes sense. Airspace is staggered for a reason in places and there's altitudes and, you know, so there, there's a way to, to sort of certainly, uh, regulate the stuff. It's the trick is getting people who want to play with their toys, which I get it. It's a fun little toy, but after at a certain altitude, it's not a toy anymore. And um, so, yeah, I, this is an interesting one. And I, you know what? It's 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 coming. So let's figure it out. <laughs> and and I think we're we're more talking towards. Uh, the recreational usage of the drones. Because if you're yeah. using it commercially, obviously you're registering your commercial operation. And and yes, they do have applications to go up to 10,000 feet right. for photography, et cetera. We're not really, we're not specifically talking about that. We're talking about the general use. Right. Uh, but so. if you can, yeah, if, if, yes, true. Uh, I mean, I don't know what the status is of commercial use of drones and registration requirements. Uh, is that now an official thing as well? And you know, has that I, been a thing? I think I, uh, I mean, uh, I, I thought I heard something about it, you know, for photography, say photographic use. Right. Um, but I, you know, there was a question of jurisdictions and who was in charge of making that happen. Is it was it the FAA for a while? It wasn't. It was local authorities, and that was a mess. And I haven't been tracking it. Yeah. I, so you I, still I have to get your triple three, which actually, and that's okay. for your for your registration as a as a commercial operator. And I I know just uh, enough to say that. And, uh -huh. and I have friends that are commercial operators, and there there's a lot of restrictions there. So you have you have to be a pilot, et cetera. Okay. Um, but but this is more registration of 
of the unmanned aircraft that are for like gifts during the holidays, that type of thing, right, right. And, and trying to prevent you know the the usage in in any kind of nefarious, but also in a in a usage in a manner that that wouldn't promote safety. And I think that's important. And uh, and I yeah. think that's what we, what we can all agree on is is a good idea because now we can start saying, yeah, because we're seeing this more and more, aren't we? You know, we're seeing more drones, and you know, we've some of us have flown with drones, et cetera, but in in a controlled environment, that's different. Uh, but when we go into an environment where you have an operator that's not speaking with another operator, you know, how do we do that within an airspace and and keep keep the safety, keep everything safe? You know, I, I kind of liken this, and it's gonna. I, I know this this might be stretching it a little bit. I liken this to like the lasers. You know, we have a lot of people that are able to operate lasers that are much stronger now, especially the green lasers, and we're seeing them in the cockpits of aircraft at night being shined. Uh, we didn't have this technology, so we didn't have this conversation before. And now we're having this conversation because we do have this technology, and the technology is is actually inexpensive, and it's, it enables the average individual to have that technology. So I think this is, this is a good step. It's uh, obviously has to go through a process of, of vetting and also a process of of actually properly registering these. And that's going to be tough, I, I think. Uh, I know we can do it, but I think it's going to be difficult. Because if you look at aircraft compared to drones, there's not that many aircraft compared to the number of drones that they're actually putting out on the market in just one year. Uh, I think right. a key factor, too, is education. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to Tom's story, it's really easy for us to be like, oh, my God, he was up at 10,000 feet. What would he, was he thinking? We're all pilots. So we're aware of the dangers, but I think for someone who has a UAV and is just using it for fun is just thinking, oh, what a great shot. You know, there's not that many planes. I'll be able to see them. And as pilots, we're aware of how easy it can be on a clear day not to see traffic that's right near you. Um, So I think there definitely needs to be a level of education uh, towards the non-pilot community about UAVs. In addition... We um, now at my company, we are starting to insure UAVs, and I have to ask questions sometimes about, you know, do you have any formal training? How many hours do you have flying? What safety procedures do you have in place? And sometimes people hesitate because they don't know the answers to those questions. So that's another item to keep in mind that, you know, before you do this, um, especially if it's, you know, a drone over 55 pounds, you know, that's something they need to consider. Well, and you just mentioned something there, the 55 pounds. There's there's an education process. That's like you said, like, do I need to register over a certain weight, et cetera? So I think the FAA is being very forward thinking in this and saying, yeah, let's let's get this information out there. And uh, they actually have a website, which actually helps you. I'm trying to remember the name of it, and I'll get it in a little bit. But uh, which helps you before you fly, you know, this drone, please read this website. I think it's really cool stuff. Education is very important. I really agree with that, Victoria. And I think that's that's one of my my favorite parts of of this of this whole registration process. Is it's not just a registration process, and, uh, and I know there's a lot of people, big brothers watching, et cetera. But but in in general, we are trying to help uh, with safety and also education. That's a great point, Victoria. But, yeah, thank you. Go ahead. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's actually another interesting thing is the fact that um, you know we've we've seen 
the, not just the proliferation of drones, but other issues. And there's some there's a really cool podcast out there, the UAV Digest. And uh, I think that's a really cool one. If you want to learn more about the triple three that I just mentioned in registering as a commercial drone operator, you can you can learn that. We actually have some people that uh, are going to come on the podcast that have, and, and we have a friend of the podcast that actually has this triple three and is a commercial operator now. So we're going to have them on the podcast to talk a little bit about that. So I'm really excited cool. to go there. Um, so let's let's not drone on about drones. Ha! Uh, too much, too long. I just had to put that out. I'm sorry, yeah, no, but I've been wanting to put say that for a long well time. Bad. That was really poor. But the, <laughs> but but I I think I think we we all can agree that if if someone's going to operate in an airspace with other aircraft, uh, that yeah, we want to we want to educate them, and we also want to be able to to help with some type of enforcement action if those people operate illegally or, or in a reckless manner. I think that's, that's a really good point there. Definitely. Uh, so good stuff though. I mean, I, I love, I absolutely love these things. I, I just think it's, has anybody seen the, the pictures that they can take? Uh, yeah. It's just, it's, it's amazing. You can't do this uh, with, well, you, I guess you could, but it would be so expensive. All you have to put up is this drone with a camera on the bottom and get these amazing shots of, oh, say, oh, the most amazing thing that I've seen is waterfalls. You know, I, I love waterfalls and I love like lighthouses too. And there's certain lighthouses you, I just, you can't get to. And you can actually take a drone and take these amazing pictures and, and look at the lenses, et cetera. Right. Hey, Carl, I think one of the best ones I saw was, uh, Two years ago, when uh, around the Fourth of July, and somebody flying through the fireworks with a drone and a camera, that that angle was something that you would just never see anywhere else. It was it's absolutely stunning. Wow! This Fourth of July, I actually there was one flying. I was on yeah. the roof of a building watching the local fireworks, and there was one flying over us. And the first thing I thought, fortunately, was after, oh, that's cool. The second thing I thought was, oh, that's right on the flight path to Frederick Airport. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I tell you, we're, we're going to have a link to this, by the way. There's a, a great article, AOPA, hats off to them about the uh, drones and also the registration. They do some great reporting on it, and they have some really cool uh, video and some audio concerning the registration uh, which actually includes uh, the FAA administrator Michael Huerta, and uh, he did he had uh, some really good things to say. And I, it was one of the one of those times where I, I felt you know really good about our government and the and the job they're doing. And I'd love to hear feedback from from our listeners on that. So that that was some terrific stuff. Some of the the reporting they did there. Well, anyway, moving on uh, to our our next topic, we uh, actually. Uh, had an interesting incident. Uh, speaking of automation or or something that's going to help us stay safe, I think uh, Rick, you were going to talk a little bit about this, and I'd love to have a discussion about it. Is uh, uh, Rick, what happened this yep. past week? Are you talking? This is the serious story. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of angles here. In fact, I bet you Victoria's got some interesting, you know, perspective on on some of this airframe parachute stuff uh, from her perspective. Um, and yeah, there was, I mean, I think what made this a story is there was video captured of um, basically uh, a Cirrus, as we all know, Cirrus have airframe uh, parachutes um, that, uh, it was an SR-22 um, that landed uh, in, using under parachute, you know, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, and there was a video of it. And I saw a few, um, and I guess there was, there had been another video that someone shot uh, of their plane. I think it was uh, somebody ferrying a plane across the Pacific and, and there was video from inside as that, you know, as that plane 
was, you know, was coming down uh, under parachute. But it doesn't happen very often. And I, I saw a lot of um, people online commenting, a couple, a couple people who had been involved in with companies that make the shoots and the and the sort of rockets that help propel them out of the plane, um, and the idea was pretty. It was in- interesting to them that there was video that, that the um, uh, you know engineers could take a look at to learn more about you know how what the process is because they obviously um, maybe it's not obvious even if nothing else happens when you in the Cirrus when you pull that lever you destroy the plane uh, basically you know it's not. It's a total. It's a total airplane. At least that's my. That was that was how I was trained, and I don't think that was just because I was flying a rental. Um, and uh, so, um, so they probably don't pull them too often. And and so that this kind of thing was an interesting thing. And um, it sounded like, as I read the story of this particular situation, um, he uh, the pilot had declared uh, just after getting to ten thousand feet, had declared an emergency. There was an engine problem, loss of oil pressure. Um, and uh, the you know air traffic got you know was aiming him toward an airport, and at a at a point at I think he was at two thousand two hundred feet um, on a three mile final, he made the decision that he wasn't going to get there safely. That between him and the airport was enough population um, that the better plan was to pull the chute, um, and that you know is an interesting that right there is a whole interesting thing to to talk about. But but a prob you know based on what it sounds like. Uh, a, a wise decision, but you know we don't know. We weren't there, um, but anyway, uh, I guess th- Carl, you want to talk yeah, about this I, from I'm, some well, point of view, and I certainly could talk about training training with with one, which the, we you know which I did. There, there's a couple prongs to this that I want to, and you went down one of them as far as you know. Did they make the right decision, et cetera? We'll talk about that in a se- in a second because yeah. there's all those discussions on the on the internet. But what I'm interested in first is the training, and uh, and also. I'm also interested in does this this ballistic parachute help you in your insurance and Victoria can talk a little bit about that but first let's talk about the training aspect which uh, you know I was able to do a demo flight with a Cirrus a while back and the folks were just wonderful uh, one of the things that we or that they've changed over the years is the the actual philosophy in the use of the of the parachute because there were certain times when you were not to use it because you were below an altitude, below or above or below a certain speed, etc. But now, I think that philosophy has changed. And someone, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, basically if you think you should pull it, pull it. You know you're going to total the airplane, but that's what you have the insurance for. I'm, I'm curious, you know, Rick, when you went through, what, what was, say, the philosophy behind the usage of the parachute? Yeah, that was pretty much it. It was... Um you know, in, in, the, the, it, within the book, uh, in, in learning about the plane, there were a number of cases where there was no other resolution to a situation but to pull the parachute. That, that if the following conditions are met, and I don't remember what, you know, like I think a spin, I think, was one of them, um, uh, or, or uh, was to pull the parachute. I, have, I, I don't, I, it's been a while since I've been through the book, so I may be wrong about that, but I think that was it. And, and so it was, uh, the, the, what they were trying to drum into us was be, uh, was pull it. There were, there weren't too many places where you shouldn't pull it. <laughs> and, um, and the heart at what I was told at the time was it, it's a hard thing to make yourself do when you know, you're going to destroy an airplane, but you're going to save, you know, you're in theory going to save your life. So it's almost like uh, getting any of those last minute, um, reactions in, in aviation into your head so that they become second nature. The problem with this one is you can't practice it. Um, <laughs> But the idea being, at least mentally, 
you keep talking about it because you 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 need to not worry. You need to just do the thing, and I think that's still the case. I mean, I my guess is they're trying to um, maximize the chances for it to be proven to be a, a valuable um, tool, uh, which is don't don't hesitate to use it. Use it. It will work and. And, uh, you know, you'll be safer. Um, but yeah, it was a thing, you know, it was part of pre-flight. You pull that pin. There's, for those people who don't know, there's a, there's a pin that prevents the, um, the handle from being, from in, the handles above your, above you in the ceiling. And there's a pin that prevents that from being moved. And you pull that ahead of time. So you have the ability to make the, to make the pull if you have to. And, um, and I was told too, the other thing uh, pretty drummed into my head that it is a very hard, firm pull. You have to pull very hard. At least that's what I was told. I never had to do it, um, <laughs> fortunately. But um, and I never really thought I was in a position where I needed to do it. But um, it was certainly, you know, we we you check it, you you, you double check it, and actually I, we kept the pin right there on the dash so you could see it. And I see other pictures from cockpits of other Cirrus pilots, and that's where that pin is. Uh, partly so you know you you've you've pulled it, so it's ready. You know, it's armed. So uh, anyway, that that was that was about all that that happened. In terms of that, it was just a talked about thing and it was a, a, a part of getting prepared to take off and then uh, putting the plane away, you know, putting the pin back. You know, another part of that that I thought was fascinating as you were going through that is is the fact it, it's not just a pin. I think there's a cover that has to be placed in, in the proper position. Is that right? If you remember, uh, so that it has the instructions facing outward. I, I, there was a cover that, that hides it. That came. That all I had to do was the only thing I remember about the cover is I took it off, pulled the pin, and put it back. But I don't remember a an instruction readability issue. But, but that may be new. Uh, yeah, and it, maybe that's not so much it, or the fact that you have to actually put the cover back on. Yeah, and, uh, I that, guess that, maybe that's true. So that it's not so that there isn't even an accidental, you know, right. you know, <laughs> yeah, you go you go weightless a bit, and something catches that thing and pulls on it. Yeah, yeah. Not, that would not be good. Yeah, it's not a handhold. No, <laughs> although boy, it's a really nice one. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> but it's not. You only get to use it once. Yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I absolutely, I think it's a great idea, and you know, I think it's tough for us pilots to say this because there are situations that yeah, we can't get ourselves out of, and that's just the way life is. And we all think, oh, you know, I don't know why they put the shoot in this thing. As a matter of fact, um, I mean, yeah, like, careful what I say. Go ahead. Well, I should say that I didn't fly that plane because it had a shoot. Like I probably, there are some people who do that who mm -hmm. say, I'm going to, I want to, that seems safer. I'm going to do that. And that might be good logical thinking. I don't know. I, I, that was just a, it was available. It was at a place I wanted to fly. And I, and I like modern technology. I like current technology. And so the tech on it, the way it was built, et cetera, just seemed to fit where my head was at with that kind of thing. Rather, and, and so, but it was, the parachute was just an extra thing to, to be aware of like oh that's kind of cool but hope that never happens and that's an that was an excellent segue into what i really wanted to talk about also especially with the in the insurance is you know what what is it uh, you know as far as moving forward uh, am i going to pull that chute uh, what is our attitude as pilots you know as towards this ballistic parachute system on an aircraft and and a lot of the folks that i've talked to especially in aircraft sales when i was looking for one is the fact that you know hey you know, this, I won't ever need this, but it's on the airplane. And uh, I, re I really think, I, I don't know, I love having that extra safety no matter what it is. I like having something extra. I don't know. What, what do you feel, Larry? Well, um, I think having the parachute is a great idea for, you know, at least airplanes that have it, um, especially if you're out over water or something like that where you could end up flipping the airplane when, when the gear catch. Um, in this particular case, 
a couple things made it interesting to me. One is uh, I grew up flying in that area uh, in Salem Springs, which is not very far away at all. So I've landed at all these airports um, many, many times. Um, another thing was that the uh, pilot is listed as the Walmart CEO, former Walmart CEO, Bill Simon. Um, and uh, so when it's talking about the airports that he's flying out of, um, being Bentonville and then ending up on uh, Final Four, uh, I believe, Fayetteville, according to the story. Um, the thing that I'm kind of wondering, though, is if pulling the chute was um, maybe not all that well thought out. Uh, because knowing that area, there is nowhere that you could be at 10,000 ah. feet that you couldn't be at a uh, better place to land uh, and pull the chute. Even if you had to pull the chute, a uh, better place to do it than over... Um, you know, a five-lane highway and crash into a truck and send people to the hospital. So pulling right. the chute didn't get them to walk away. Pulling the chute gave them minor injuries, including people that were in a truck on the ground. Well, yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, you think, uh, and he he, he kind of got lucky that he landed where he landed because once you pull a chute, you, there's not a lot of control. You're you just have, a spectator. Yeah, exactly. So, but I will say that the story description of heading t toward an airport with an attempt to land, I mean, why he didn't make it, you, know, you, you should be able to know when you make that start, right? When you start that distance from an altitude at Glide, <laughs> you should have some sense of how it's going to go, I would think. And I, uh, so it's sort of funny that he thought he could make it. They thought he could make it or whatever. I think more will come out on that, you know, because yeah. if, if that's the way it really went, then there was some miscalculation maybe based on winds or something. But, it's, you know, you're start, if, you, if this started at 10,000 feet, there's, there's a good amount of time. It's not a lot of time, but... If you if you fairly quickly get it into glide, that it's not a bad gliding plane, you know. Sure. So anyway, well, and at ten thousand feet out there, there's tons of open space. Yeah, um, exactly. And if I knew I was going to have to pull the chute anyway, or felt like it was a, a reasonable possibility, at least I'd want to get over some of that open space. Um, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If yeah. that were possible. Yeah, Again, you're right. No. Not really wanting yeah. to second guess this particular incident uh, because they did get out safely, you know, roughly. Um, but, uh, but thinking about how yeah. that decision-making process should be taught or how I might want to think about doing it myself, uh, you know, just sort of something to explore. Well, it is that interesting thing, isn't it? Where you think I'm going to try to do everything I can to not pull that chute, which is I'm going to head to a, see if I can get this into an airport safely, which is what we, we would all like to have happen because it's way easier for me. You know, it's that whole thing. And then, and then, and maybe that's not the right thinking. If you're, you know, if you're lower, maybe it's an obvious decision. You're never going to get there. I'm going to head out. I'm going to, I'm going to head over here to the, to the right and get over a field and then pull the chute versus, versus head, you know, toward an airport where it's congested. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and maybe the trying to make it safely thing was smart from the beginning, but I don't know. Well, we'll and that's we'll a great conversation right there is uh, we, it's a series of decisions are flying, correct? So if he made the correct decision to actually circle down to an airport and then part of that decision-making process or he actually made the wrong decision and say said, oops, I made it, I went a little too wide, etc. Now I'm stuck behind the eight ball, but I still have this parachute that can save me. So in the beginning, it started off okay, but now I don't have, I, I've painted myself into a corner I have this extra ability to get out of it. Uh, so, so there are those situations where the decision number two or three may have put me in this 
bad situation. I know, uh, Larry, you're a glider pilot. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting to, to listen to glider pilots talk about this, uh, a shoot especially. And I'm, I'm glad we're here talking about this because I've always wanted to ask glider pilots, do you, at, do you wear a parachute? I know the folks doing aerobatics do. Uh, and, and when would you use that parachute? Because it, it seems to me you can land a glider just about anywhere. Larry, what, what do you think about that statement? Yeah, I, I know a lot of people that wear, that wear shoots routinely in, in gliders. Um, you're going to use the, the chute if you have a structural failure of the aircraft, um, an in-flight uh, uh, collision. Um, and that sounds really odd, but uh, if you think about 8 or 10 or 12 gliders all circling in very close proximity to each other uh, in, a, in a tight bit of strong lift, for example, um, it's happened before, you know, where you're coming around in the circle with many other gliders uh, that, you know, you have an, you have an in-flight collision. Um, so there are times like that uh, when you would use one. But if you're coming down under control, uh, I don't know of anyone who's ever, you know, used that because you can land pretty short in just about anywhere. Yeah, I, I know someone who's actually, you know, landed and, and totaled the aircraft and just stood up. Uh, and a glider, yeah, know, because there's just it's low lower energy, of course, uh, but you know there are situations again where you may not be able to, uh, you'd have to bail out possibly. So, yeah, I mean like, my my gut feel is that whether it's a Cirrus or a glider, um, I would rather if it's possible if I have the space to do it, I would rather come down under control where I could choose where to put the aircraft, even if I'm going to total it, um, than to come down under a chute if it's you know if I all of a sudden lose that option of of having control, um, if I have that option, you know, if it's, if it's not a, a significant, I'm sorry, a, a, a situation where it's kind of dictated for me. Right, right. And that, that kind of leads us to the next part of this, this conversation is now I'm looking at my airplane and uh, I don't have a ballistic parachute. You know, why would I put one on there? Is it worth the extra money? And I understand saving a life, you know, you can't put a price on that. You know, what does it do for me uh, as far as my operation, my specific operation? Do I fly over inhospitable terrain, et cetera? Do I fly over swamps? Yes, I do that a lot. Do I fly over water? Yes. Uh, would it help me in that situation? Plus, and I, I'd, I'd like to hear Victoria's viewpoint on this when people are trying to make a decision, how does it affect my insurance costs on my aircraft for those of us that, that own aircraft or have owned aircraft? Um, does it does it decrease our insurance or does it help us? I, I don't, I'm not sure. Victoria, can you speak on that one? Well, first, if you're ever um, flying along and you have to pull that chute, please don't be thinking about your insurance at that time. <laughs> your life is your <laughs> priority here. But um, when you're looking at buying an aircraft and you know the discounts available uh, for an aircraft purchase, there's only been one company we've worked with where I have actually seen them note a discount for having a BRS system. Uh, most mm. others, it's just kind of built into the rate. So anyone knows that a SR-20 and SR-22 will have a parachute. And there's a few other airplanes out there um, that can be installed with them. So if if that one rare one comes up, they can ask or we can tell. Um you know, it's, a really, it's really hard to tell if they'll give a discount for that. Um, I think it's kind of just built into the Cirrus aircraft. There's, there's a lot of factors that go into your rates, and the most important one is pilot experience. That's what they're going to be looking at first and foremost, especially in a Cirrus. Um, they've been notoriously high to insure for years, and the rates are finally dropping as they're getting more statistics on them, and 
they're getting safer and safer and uh, there's a lot of them out there. So um, rates are going down and, you know, it's uh, it's obviously a great safety feature. I wonder if the rates are coming down because of all the education going on. I would assume that will be it. Uh, it could be. I think it's partial, um, partially the that, but it's also the competition in the market. Um, you know, if I were to quote a series for you, I would send it out to like eight or nine different companies. So there's eight or nine different companies, you know, vying for your business and wanting to write it. So they, they're hoping that they have the lowest rate. Interesting. And like any appliance on an aircraft, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost money to actually insure the chute because it is uh, it's an appliance. So it's something that actually is going to cost you money to fix if it breaks. Mm-hmm. And you have to have it, uh, I think, every 10 years or whatever, recharged. I, I don't know the specifics on it. But yeah, you do. I've actually dropped one off to do that before with the old uh, flight instructor of mine. And so that does have to be done routinely. And that's an expense that, you know, you definitely should think of if a Cirrus is the aircraft you're going for. Now, if you do, when you do that, that's not included covered by insurance. That's probably under wear and tear, routine maintenance. So that you couldn't file a claim because you have to, you know, update your BRS system. However, packing a brand new chute probably increases the value of your aircraft. So you can look at that too. Yeah, and I think it does. I think it increases the value because there are people that, you know, I know my wife would like to see me flying an aircraft that has a parachute on it just because it makes her feel safer. And and what is that value to me as an owner? It it means that she's going to fly with me. There's a, there's a value on that because uh, yep. otherwise she's not going to fly with me. I'm going to have to buy a twin, burn more gas, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? So so there is value there. Uh, and, and it's a perceived value, maybe, uh, but I, I think it's valuable. I think that it's it's an, a really cool conversation to have with ballistic parachutes. And, you know, uh, Rick said something earlier about there's no training for that. I would love to see somebody like Redbird. I mean, I know the migration is going on or is over by now, by the time this comes out. You know, I would love to see... Uh, them come out with a, a training video on the on, on pulling the chute and actually a simulation of, of somebody going down to the ground, et cetera, or, or somebody you know in a, in a simulator. It kind of be kind of cool to see. Uh, I think they need to work on that. I know Rick's Rick's a real tech guy. He could ha- probably help yeah. out with that. Well, you'd you'd want to be in it. Yeah, the Redbird simulator would want to simulate what that what that G force pull is like when the you know and and oh, the other thing that's hard is just simulating how hard it is to pull because I never felt that. I just know I was told it's. It's not a simple pull. You know, it's not easy to pull. Yeah, and that's and it's a good thing to do that. I know like when I when I do a, a manual gear extension uh, during training, it's it's a lot different on different aircraft and mm-hmm. it's at, in some you're like you're, you're cranking it really hard in other words you're just, you know, it's like winding up a top, you know. So it's <laughs> yeah. it's really it really is a good idea to go, go through that whole process and you're sitting there is that it? Yeah, yeah that, that's yeah. it. You yeah. know, and and this is what you're going to feel and this is what it's going to feel like to you. I think that's cool. I think we we definitely need to to see more of that. So I, that's a challenge out there. But uh, <laughs> that that would be that would be something that that I think we'll we'll definitely uh, to talk to uh, actually somebody we have coming back from Redbird migration is going to be on the show in the future and we'll talk to them about that so that's that'd be really really cool. Well, anyway, you know this is this is a real good conversation on the ballistic parachute system on the Cirrus. Um, you know, again, you know, we we don't. I, I like to analyze these things and and not 
try to say that the person, what they did is right or wrong. We're doing this just really to start a conversation and to help us think about these things. It's always difficult when you analyze a, an accident or an incident uh, because you do really, really want to learn something from it. But, but you also want to be respectful to the person that did do that because bottom line is that person's alive right now, especially in this situation. So did they make the right decision about their life? Probably yes. Uh, could they have done something better? Maybe, and that's what they have to revisit and look at, and that's what we do as pilots all the time. Is is we have to go back and reevaluate what did we do and what could we have done differently. And I think that's that's really really important. Well, anyway, moving on. There's there's something else that I thought was was really cool that that Rick Felty actually brought up, and it has to do with flying, and <laughs> has to do with wings. And it, I saw this video, and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" And uh, so, Rick, tell us a little bit <laughs> about what you Dubai? saw. Is this the, the Dubai? Dubai? Oh my yeah. God! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us. Well, it was sort of. There were two videos, and I'll just throw one of them. Was I don't know if anyone's seen it. We'll put it in the show notes. The the jetpack flight over uh, New, around New York City. Uh, that you know, it's it's not a wingsuit. It's a jetpack. A little more like. Uh, what we used to think of as the future space, you know, space kind of thing. Um, but that's a separate video. No, this Dubai video, I don't, have you guys all seen this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. video. Yeah, and it's a, you know, it's a marketing piece and, and whatever, but, and they, and they, they, they went to, to great lengths to discuss how carefully planned uh, this event was. Uh, from the shooting angle stuff to to the actual flying, but um, I you know I don't know how to summarize it. It's it's what, what do you call those things? Are they jet, are they wing jet suits or what are they? Um, well, they're they calling call them jetpacks, jetmen and jetpack. Yeah, jetpacks. Yeah, jetpacks. Um, these two uh, guys flying with these winged jetpacks on their backs within clearly feet of the wings of a what kind of an A three eighty? It says. Uh, you know, over uh, you know, over Dubai, and uh, with uh, being photographed beautifully, uh, you know, I guess it was—I assume it was a helicopter, uh, but I think I'd heard that it was. I don't know. And um, you know, my my question I was going to ask everybody is, you know, and I don't even know how to frame it. Would you, would you want to do that? Um, I don't know what the answer is for me. I suppose you know the idea of it. If it was known to be totally safe, it's. I've I've always you know we probably all had dreams of just putting our wings out and our arms out as wings and going up in the air. But um, wow, that's that's pretty intense stuff. You know, I I, I think it's stuff. really cool. I mean, it's yeah. it's so neat that you. But but my my thought initially is like, here's an A380, and I know I fly behind these these folks all the time and you're sitting there like eight miles away because of the wake so there was a little bit of planning into this because i'm sure those people would have just tumbled in oh, a yeah. huge wake i mean that's a super i mean that thing is is ginormous and the wake that that actually produces i was and, thinking but, about that carl when i was watching the video and you can see they take great care to never get uh you know behind and below right right and the, all those shots are from above and because uh, I've I've been walking outside behind an A380, and I was really far away, and it's actually pinned me against a wall when they actually brought the power up. And those things are just so powerful; those engines, and then also, of course, the wake while they're in flight. Which, uh, but but this this brings up other things. I mean, this is why we fly. I mean, because we feel like a bird, and I'm like a you know I'm like a pigeon, you know, coming up on a big condor and yeah. uh, and hanging out and saying, "Hey guys, you know, I think that's really neat." Wonder what that uh, airspeed. Wonder what airspeed was during. Uh, oh, there it uh, is. 170. 170. It says, it says yeah. 170 knots. That's uh, oh. I bet. Oh that's it, from the A380's point of view. Holy cow! Yeah, 
there. Yeah, but that, that's how they can approach speed. I mean, that, yeah. that's you know, okay. it's nothing unheard of. But, um, but yeah, they're 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 really got. And you can see back. those flaps out. Yeah, the flaps yeah, yeah, are out. Yeah, the flaps are out. Yeah, look at that. But but you don't really see them go that slow. I mean, it's it's pretty cool that. Yeah. And they're probably super duper light. You know, I'm, I'm sure this was an empty aircraft that they were doing this with. Right. Right. But, no, it's but there cool. Was, I mean, it reminded me, it's, there's some, all these different ways to be up in the air these days, and that was just crazy. I loved it. It was like, blew me away. I, I thought it was cool. The one, uh, and I remember seeing this like in old videos of this of the people in these jet packs, the one that they flew around New York in that yeah, you mentioned, yeah. and that was phenomenal. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like it's a company that's making them sale i don't know why they're making them but that was a test flight and uh it sounds like that runs what did it say those things run 10 minutes the one he was in um it's was it's um what's it what is how did i saw it uh, uh jet back jet pack back runs on kerosene kerosene gets on your flight in mid-air for 10 minutes <laughs> yeah um and i'm not sure what the point of doing it is but there's a company making <laughs> Rocket belt. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. Well, and that's a it's, whole bunch of kerosene in a person. Yeah, that that is wild. Uh, but I would yeah. I would love to do that. I think, you know. And then yeah. you start thinking, boy, that could be kind of dangerous, wouldn't it? You know. And those are the those are the kind of conversation you have in your head. There is the thrill seeker. Well, I was wondering. Yeah. I, I was wondering how they got back on the ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good my, point. My, yeah. They, they, Go ahead. No, well, I'm, I'm thinking that um, I don't know if they took off directly from the ground or if they were if they jumped out of another aircraft to get to that point in the first place. And then once they left the scene, which they depart from the scene of the of the uh, the aircraft at the end of it, um, I, I don't know how they got back on the ground again. Do they deploy the jetpacks and then pull a chute, or is there a way to actually land those things? That those were the questions that I was left with. Yeah. Tom, when um, uh, I've, I can't think of his last name, uh, flew one last year, year and a half ago at Oshkosh, uh, he deployed from a helicopter. And then, um, so he was standing on the side of a helicopter. And then when he got ready to go, he just sort of fell off face first um, uh, into the sky and, and launched. And then uh, he did have a parachute to land. So he, you know, shut the engines off, deployed the chute and uh, came down vertically. Interesting. I mean, I, I really, I'd love to see more of these videos. I, I definitely want to try yeah. that, that little package out. The little jetpack one is nice because he took off from a standing start and landed on his feet. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you guys have played that one yet, but I, it's yes. in that email I sent around. The personal jetpack is here. And uh, that, that looks a little, <laughs> a little more manageable, I suppose. Uh, it didn't go as high or as fast, but quite mobile. More like a helicopter, probably, in terms of mobility. And Carl, just for the record, I'd probably be a probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> yeah, me too. It, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I look at those Love powered parachutes, and that kind of intrigues me. And uh, you're strapping this engine to your back and running around with a powered parachute. Uh, I think it, seem, it seems like these are more controllable. I, I don't know. Maybe yeah. they're just uh, assuming that. But uh, yeah. interesting stuff. stuff. What yeah, a, that was all this week. 
Yes, all in one week. And, and we have more to talk about, but unfortunately, we're running up a, against the time clock here. And, and I, I mean, this has been a great conversation, you know, from, from drones to shoots to keeping you out of the leaves, you know, the drone shoots and leaves edition of, of Stuck Mike Avcast. We, we really enjoyed bringing these, <laughs> all these different, different aspects of aviation because we love aviation. No matter what it is, we're up in the air and we're flying. And uh, whether it's in a helicopter, a plane, uh, a, a drone, you know, we, we love being in the air. Our picks of the week. But we need to get to our picks of the week, and we have quite a few really, really neat ones. And, uh, well, I'll go first since I already mentioned the one uh, concerning the, the mighty 8th Air Force Museum. Uh, that was actually in Pooler, Georgia. And if you're ever on Route 95 going north-south through Georgia, uh, it's you can get right off the highway there and go to the National Museum and the mighty 8th Air Force Museum. When I talked about the Medal of Honor recipients, that is actually uh, right there at that museum. There's some really cool exhibits, and it's all about uh, – they also have the Women Air Force Service Pilots there, a really cool exhibit uh, right at the museum. And there's actually some some really cool uh, – more information about the Women Air Service Pilots. And actually, I think Victoria is going to tell us a little bit about that. What is yeah, your Yeah, um, this actually goes with my – I talked about the WASP Museum as my last pick of the week. And this one, I'm really looking forward to. If anyone's seen Band of Brothers, you know what an amazing miniseries that is. And what they are doing is coming out with Fly Girls, and it's a miniseries based on the Wasps. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's in the beginning productions right now. They actually are crowdfunding to um, fund it. So you can check it out at flygirlstheseries.com. Fly Girls of Sears, and, and we'll have that, that link in the uh, show notes. By the way, excellent, excellent presentation. You have to go watch that video. It, it'll bring some oh, – there's a part of it will bring tears to your eyes. So The so website actually has two different videos. I highly suggest you watch them both. There's a trailer, and then there's one about them kind of talking about why they're doing this. And yes. Yeah, both – you do tear up. Yes, it, it was awesome. Awesome. But thank, thanks for that, Victoria. And uh, Rick, what is, what is your uh, pick of the week? Yeah, my pick of the week, uh, we're getting close to the holidays, and uh, this is my shameless plug pick, um, it, which I've not mentioned before on the show because it's not directly aviation-related. Um, I'll start by saying, if you want to get a book for someone this holiday season and you want it to be aviation-related, get Turbo the Flying Dog, one or two, uh, because I <laughs> love those books. Um, but I also have a little book, a little kid's book out about a cat um, called Tabitha Fink, and it's not aviation-related. But if you happen to know any really little kids, early readers, you know, uh, it's um, it's a sweet little book with a nice message, and it's available on Amazon. And uh, I thought, boy, if I mention it now, it's a good timing, and I won't mention it again. So if you're looking for it, it's on Amazon. Just search uh, my name, Rick Felty. I or will Felty. vouch for Rick. Turbo and I read it, and actually, it's it's, it's so enjoyable. I mean, I didn't even have a kid to read it to, but Tonight, I enjoyed my, reading it. <laughs> thanks, thanks. My son is in the, you know, he's working on words now, you know, all that that whole thing. And uh, tonight, uh, just before we came on, he, for the first time, because he's gotten better, we hadn't been at, we hadn't seen the book in a while. I brought it back out, um, and he did. He was, it was great. It was very exciting. So these words I'd written, you know, m- maybe a year ago. He's he's reading himself, which is very cool to see. That's a whole other dynamic to that. But anyway, yeah, it's uh, thank you very much. And I and of course, uh, Tabitha read the Turbo books as well. She loved them too. <laughs> you know, when 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 I when she could. As a cat, be bothered to give me the time of day. Exactly. Still anyway, but yeah, so that's that's my pick of the week. <laughs> awesome, Rick. I can't wait to read that. That sounds like a great book. I've got a, quite a few. Uh, I'll get you a copy. I know somebody. Idea? Can you get me a signed yeah, I, copy? Yeah, I get you a copy. Sure. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. And, and uh, next on our pick of the week is going to be Tom Frick. Tom, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, I 
Um, like I've stated before, I like the weather stuff, and uh, I don't know if this pick of the week has ever come up before, but uh, it's something that I kind of look at a lot and, and just see it as fascinating. Um, the name of the site is earth.noschool.net, and basically what it is is a global map of wind, weather, and ocean conditions. And you can click through this thing, and, and it graphically shows you um, currents of wind and where they're flowing and at different altitudes. It started at like the surface, then to 300 feet, and it goes all the way up to the top of the stratosphere, up to the 70,000-foot range. Um, you can zoom in on any part of the world. Um, what I do with this is I kind of um, look at it against uh, what I find like on the prog charts over at Aviation Weather, um, where low pressure system, high pressure, where frontal systems are coming through. And, and this just gives a graphical representation of that. And it's quite mesmerizing. Um, you can look at it for wind currents. You can look at it for ocean currents. Um, and it's um, temperatures, dew points. There's all sorts of other information that you can get out of it. Um, it's really um, fascinating, I think. So I thought I'd put it out there and uh, see if uh, other aviators would yes. like to play with this. No, it's beautiful. It's actually it, mesmerizing. Is a good word. Um, I, I love it. I think it's a, it's wonderful. And that this data, could be a screensaver. Yeah, and that, it's and I watch. Apparently, Chicago's due for some. Larry, you too, due for some pretty intense winds, if not already. Yeah, we've had some storms going through while we were talking tonight. I've been on mute yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, so it'd be worth it right now to look at the middle of the country because those isobars will be very compressed. Anyway. Well, that's neat. You know, we're going to, he's not only an ab geek, but he's also a weather geek like most of us are here, Tom. I appreciate you bringing up both, a couple of different weather uh, picks of the week. So th thanks so much. Uh, Larry, actually, you're, you're pulling up the trail here. What is your pick of the week? All right. So um, I think last time I had a, a book called uh, The Thinking Pilot's. Um, flight Manual by Rick Durden, and I was thinking about some of the other aviation books I've enjoyed over the years, one of which is called uh, Red Says Up, Up, and Away, or My Life and How I Flew It. Uh, this is no longer in print, but you can pick it up on eBay pretty cheap, and my wife got it for me um, probably 20 years ago or so for Christmas, and I ended up reading the entire book on Christmas Day and then got in trouble because I hadn't spent any time with the family, um, but it was that good. I just could not put it down. Um, and it's a series of each chapter is just a different story from this guy's life. Uh, Red Stevens used to own the largest aircraft dealership in the world. And uh, just picking a couple sentences out of the preface here, he says, Perhaps believing in gypsy luck has gotten me through seven Maydays with nothing more than a broken arm. But even more important is the fact that I've never been the cause of an injury to a passenger. I did have a passenger fall out of a balloon once. However, in this case, the FAA ruled that the accident was passenger error, not pilot error. Um, so that's just kind of a flavor of what it is. And chapter two, Carl, is called Speech to the Oklahoma State University Flying Aggies. And it made me think of you uh, with the work that you do at uh, Polk State. So a um, lot of great stories. Uh, some of them may be tall tales. You never can tell. But a lot of fun reading for any Av geek. Awesome. I, that, that's terrific. And by the way, we'll have links to that uh, on the uh, Stuck Mike Avcast in this episode, episode 108. Well, gosh, that, that brings another episode to a close. These are great conversations that we have here about general aviation. We really appreciate, by the way, all the, the likes on Facebook and also the ratings in iTunes. If you could, you know, please go out and rate us in iTunes. Give us a five-star if you could and so other people can find us. Uh, we have so much fun bringing this to you, you know, whether it's, you know, <laughs> going out there and, and maybe flying a drone or pulling a ballistic parachute to keep you out of the leaves. I mean, this is the one podcast that we absolutely love bringing to you because because we're all passionate about aviation. 
Well, folks, hopefully you'll do something today in aviation, maybe tomorrow. Think about flying tomorrow. Think about going out and researching something, but do something today so that you can have fun with aviation in your future and in others. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.